Baruch Hashem, Boker Tov, good morning. Welcome everyone to the prep day. The prep day, the day before Shabbat, the sixth day of the week. As we're getting ready to enter into the, uh, the marvelous Shabbat, to the foretaste of the world to come. Amazing, Baruch Hashem. Hope everybody has a beautiful prep day. It's a little... Little rainy here again in uh, Fort Worth, but thank God for the rain. Better to have rain than drought. Amen. Our parasha Lech Lecha, the sixth reading on uh, on the uh, art score. In I should say in the art score Chumash, we would be on page sixty six, sixty seven, page sixty six or page sixty seven, depending if you're reading in Hebrew or English. We have uh, the verse beginning here in chapter 15, verse 7, coming out of the, uh, the great promise where Hashem took uh, Abraham outside his tent and showed him that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars and the, and the uh, sky and so on. And now we have unto an amazing action-packed Aliyah today, lots of very important uh, things to talk about in this Aliyah and things that relate directly to our sect of Judaism. I'll explain here in just a second as we're looking. So, let's begin reading, shall we? With God's help. Baruch Hashem. Pay, uh, verse 7, fi- chapter 15, the book of Genesis, chapter 15, and verse 7, the Aliyah for today. He said to him, Vayomer elav ani Adonai. I am Adonai who brought you out of Ur Chasdim to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, My Lord Adonai Elohim, whereby shall I know that I am to inherit it? And he said to him, Take to me three heifers, three goats, three rams, a turtle dove, and a young dove. Now, just to pause there for a moment, this is what we're about to experience here in this Aliyah is the covenant between the parts. The covenant between the parts. Very important uh, Aliyah. And so it says here in the Art Scroll commentary something just uh, to point out. It says, by telling uh, Avram, where it says, whereby shall I know? By telling him to use animals to seal the covenant in verse 9, God was answering you and your descendants will merit the land because of the sacrifices you're about to offer. Abraham was apparently concerned that God's covenant, his promises would be dependent upon his and his, his uh, you know, progeny's uh, uh, merit. So what happens if they sin, right? So Hashem is here making a covenant and he's using animal sacrifices uh, basically to insinuate, to imply that, in fact, the covenant is not contingent upon them, but contingent only upon him. So, it says here, sleek up, it says here, your de- it says, uh, let's see, you and your de- descendants will inherit the land because of the sacrifices you're about to offer, and the temple offerings that I will institute as a means of atonement for your children. But Avraham persisted that the temple would one day be destroyed. Okay, so Hashem is showing him that the covenant will be maintained because of the sacrifice, because of of the animals offered in the temple. Keep in mind 
that our idea in Judaism of sacrifice differs from uh, what is contemporarily and colloquially understood to be sacrifice in many cases. The word for carbon in, in Hebrew means to draw near. So whereas in other cultures and other mindsets and other religious philosophies, the idea of a sacrifice is a subtraction. One is giving up something, typically to appease an angry God. That is not the idea with us in Judaism. The idea is, is that we, it's, a, it's actually a, an addition, or, or probably more appropriately, a multiplication. We are giving something that draws us into the presence of God and draws us close to Him. So far be it from a subtraction, it's a multiplication. But anyway, he said, listen, what if the temple's destroyed? Abraham was a prophet. He saw what was going to happen in the future. So God answered and said, this is from Megillah 31b. They're quoting from the Talmud, Megillah 31b. God answered that when the Jewish people recite the order of the sacrificial service, which is what we do from our sitter service, it says, as it is contained, uh, as it is contained in the daily prayers, God was considered as if they had actually brought the offerings. So, what's it meaning? means that uh, in the Siddur, we have the ancient prayers in the Siddur uh, are the same prayers that were being offered up when the priests were offering up the sacrifices in the temple. So in other words, the Siddur service is the temple service. That's exactly what it is. When the, when the apostles, it, it talks about in the uh, more or less the historical letter, uh, the book of Acts, it talks about uh, Kepha and Yochanan, Peter and John, going to the temple uh, at the in, in the evening, right, and uh, they were going to the temple. They came to gate the gate called Beautiful, the Beautiful Gate, the Holder Gate, and there is a man there who's paralyzed, and he asks them for alms. He does. They don't silver and gold. We don't have, and they bless him in the name of Yeshua. Next thing you know, the guy's running around dancing and leaping, and and he can walk, and he's healed. Brukashem. Well, they were going to the temple not as some casual uh, visit, but they were actually going to the temple for the evening sacrifice, the time of evening prayer. The time of evening prayer is minka. That's when the sacrifice in the evening was offered. And so they were going there. The priest would be offering the uh, corporate lamb, the evening corporate lamb, the evening corbin. But everybody who was going there would be joining in that sacrifice vis-a-vis the prayers they would be praying along with the priests. And that's what Kepha and Yochanan were on their way to do. So this doesn't satisfy really the answer, however, because in the Midrash, I believe it's Moshe who asked the same question. What happens? What happens with, uh, with uh, you know, merit? And God says, well, you have the temple. What happens when the temple is destroyed? He said the temple should be collateral with you. What happens if the temple is destroyed? It actually says in the Midrash that Hashem will send a Zadok, a righteous man, not many righteous men, one righteous man, who will be collateral for the nation. So ultimately the promises are on the sacrifice, and ultimately it's on the sacrifice of the Akidatsa, on the sacrifice of the, uh, the only begotten son, so to speak, Right? So, we continue in the discussion here. It says, in verse 10, He took all these to him, he cut them in the center, and placed each piece opposite its counterpart. The birds, however, he did not cut up. 
So in the art school, again, we have verse 10 commentary, which is uh, very interesting. It says, in the center, Betavich, Avraham, Avraham cut the animals into two parts. In the plain sense, the passing between the se- severed parts constitutes the accepted, uh, accepted ritual in those days of those who enter into a covenant. The smoking furnace and the fire, which are mentioned in verse 17, were emissaries. They were emissaries of the divine presence, as if the Shekinah was joining Avram, Abraham in passing through the parts to symbolize God's participation in the covenant. In fact, I would take it a step further and say that God, in fact, cut the covenant ultimately with himself because he puts Avraham into a deep sleep. And therefore, uh, if you think about it, Avraham is not in a position to really ratify the covenant with any type of promise, per se. Um, So Hashem ends up cutting the covenant with himself. I said earlier that this is indicative of our particular sect of Judaism. What what do I mean? What do I mean by that? Well, we are Lapid Jews. We say somewhat tongue-in-cheek, lovingly, we're Lapidniks. That is the sect of Judaism. People often ask, what, what kind of Jew are you? Incidentally, um, last week we had a precious uh, a person call the synagogue, and they were coming from a, a non-Jewish, or a Christian background, and Hashem's been opening their eyes to Torah and so on. And uh, they called our synagogue, and, and evidently they did not realize that our synagogue uh, happened to believe uh, uh, that Yeshua was the Messiah. And so I suppose they just thought that we were Orthodox, and uh, they called us. This person was uh, going on about how uh, Hashem had been drawing in this way, and his background, etc., etc., etc. And they said to me that uh, the only thing is, the only thing is, is that uh, I believe everything 100% want to follow, uh, you know, Judaism 100%, want to be uh, Torah observant, want to be Torah true, want to be traditional, etc., the only thing is, I, I don't mean to offend, the only thing is that uh, this person said, I believe in J.C. as the, uh, as the Messiah. Um, Hold on one second. I had a little bit of a uh, technical difficulty. Sorry about that. All right, Baruch Hashem. I think I'm back. Hope I'm back. Hallelujah. Had a little bit of a uh, technical problem there. But hopefully we're back on track. We're going to continue anyway. The weather is bad, so it may be affecting our feed. So anyway, sorry about the interruption. I apologize for the interruption. Uh, so anyway, this this person was saying that uh, they want to follow everything 100%, but they believe in J.C. as the Messiah. So uh, my reply to that was, wow, wow, Hashem really 
must be uh, loving you and, and speaking to your life because of all the synagogues you could have called in Dallas-Fort Worth, you called uh, the precise one you needed to call. A synagogue that actually follows a Torah-true, authentic Judaism uh, for real and happens to believe that Yeshua is the Messiah. It's amazing. So it's an amazing, wonderful story. But we're Lapid Jews. What does Lapid mean? Lapid means torch. It is a name of the Messiah and is a title of the Messiah from Isaiah chapter 62 and verse 1. Talking about the torch of salvation. The first time the word Lapid is used, however, is in this Aliyah, right here in verse 17, where it says, So what happened, the sun set, it was very dark, and behold, there was a smoky furnace and a torch, that word torch in Hebrew is Lapid, a torch of fire which passed between these pieces. So here in the comments, it's saying that this torch and this furnace were actually Hashem's divine representatives. In fact, they were more or less the Shekinah of God. Now this this um, corresponds to many, many references. We find that uh, the Shekinah of God is the Torah, the Shekinah of God is Memtet, uh, the quote-unquote angel, although he's not really an angel, uh, but that's the best way that uh, the ancients could describe Memtet and so on. But it continues on and says, which I think is another interesting point. However, Avraham did not cut up the birds because sacrificial birds are not dissected, according to Ramban. Also, since the birds symbolize Israel in the Song of Songs 2.14, they were left whole to symbolize that Israel would live forever. So I thought that was an interesting insight as well. So, what is also interesting about this covenant of the parts that takes place here? is that if looking at the uh, the timeline, looking at the chart of the timeline that was uh, put together um, uh, and so on based on all the ancient sources, this covenant of the parts, this cutting of the covenant whereby Lapid is mentioned for the first time, takes place in the year 2018. Yes, that is true, friends. It takes place... In the year 2018, 2018 from creation is when this covenant of the parts takes place. And I, I, uh, I think that's amazing. Here we are in the year 2018, and we're talking now about this covenant of the parts. And I would like to think that that means uh, great things for our movement, great things for our synagogue. I happen to believe that Lapid is going to be turning a proverbial corner this year, and it, I've, I've said this uh, from before the 40 days of Juva, that our best days lie ahead. Listen, I'm telling you right now, I, I, I just this is our best days. We're living in the best days. Uh, our synagogue, our movement, what's going on at our place right now, ever since the 40 days has been absolutely amazing. It's been the absolute best season of my life as the rabbi here. And and so this morning I'm sitting here looking at this par this aliyah, looking at this situation and, and, and looking down and saying, Are you kidding me? The covenant of the parts is 2018. Also, a little something on Facebook from last week that I thought was pretty interesting. I don't I don't uh, mathematically I don't know what the deal is with it, but it's interesting. So if uh, apparently 
if I remember this correctly, if you take the year of your birth, this is on Facebook, you probably saw this already. Uh, my wife and I and my daughter did it and we're like, this is amazing. So you take the year of your birth and you uh, add to that the number of years you've been alive, I believe it is, and it all comes to 2018. So every single one of us, the year of your birth plus the year that you've been alive, right? Uh, all of us come to 2018. Apparently that only happens like once every thousand years or something like that. So uh, do it. Do the math. Calculate the year of your birth. Add to that the number of years you've been alive. It should come out in 2018. So I don't know what that means. I don't even think maybe it's just interesting. I have no idea. But it is interesting. And here we are in 2018 and we have the uh, covenant of the parts going on. So he continues and says... In verse 11, birds of prey descend upon the carcasses, and Abraham drove them away. And it happened, as the sun was about to set, a deep sleep fell upon Abraham, and behold, a dread, great darkness fell upon him. The commentators bring down that these, these uh, deep sleep, dread, and great darkness refer to the three exiles uh, that would come upon uh, Abraham's descendants. It says in verse 13, and he said to Abraham, Abraham, excuse me, Know with certainty that your offspring shall be aliens in a land not their own, and they will serve them, and they will oppress them 400 years. But also the nations that they will serve, I will judge, and afterwards they will leave with great wealth. As for you, you shall come to your ancestors in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age. So very quickly here, um, the 400 years being spoken about is not 400 years in Egypt. Uh, many people believe that to be true, but in fact, um, it, it isn't. The 400 years is talking about 400 years from the birth of, of Isaac. Uh, all of the commentators agree to this point, and they point out that Isaac even Isaac never had a homeland. Right? He, he lived in Canaan, which would have been promised to Israel, but he himself was a foreigner, just like his father, Avraham, a foreigner in somebody else's land. You know, kind of like, uh, like the son of man, <clears throat> you know, foxes have holes and, and birds have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> I hope you see the connection there. And so this is what's talked about here. From the days of Isaac's birth, there would be 400 years of, of not having, of, of exile, of not having a land. Incidentally, looking at the timeline, uh, we were in Egypt for 210 years. The first 94 years, we were not slaves. We wanted to be in Egypt. And, and in fact, we'll get into this as we, uh, later down in the year, we start talking about, um, you know, the Exodus itself. But the fact that we were slaves in Egypt was our own fault. We, we enslaved ourselves in Egypt. Nobody uh, enslaved us. We, they didn't come capture us and drag us down to Egypt. We went there of our own free will, and we started to get into idolatry and so on. But we were there for 210 years. We were only slaves, however, for 116 years. The last 86 years, I believe it is, uh, were intense slavery. And then the exodus occurred in the year 2448, 400 years after uh, Isaac was born. So we have, continuing in the story, it said in verse 17, as we read earlier, 
and uh, actually, <clears throat> let me back up here because I think I need to read um, verse 15. As for you, you shall come to your ancestors in Shalom, and you shall be buried in a good old age. So this teaches us that Abraham's father eventually made tshuva. That's right. He eventually made tshuva and ceased to be an idolater. This teaches us a valuable lesson that we should always continue to pray for people. We never know uh, when someone is going to turn their life over to Hashem. Reminds me of a story of a man who prayed for his best friend uh, for something like 20 years. And his best friend never became a religious person. Never never trusted Hashem. Never uh, came to faith, etc., etc. And then, then he died. The man died. And so at his funeral, his best friend, of course, was there. And uh, his best friend practically cast himself upon a, uh, the man's casket and and began to uh, to make shuva and confess Hashem as 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 the one true God and turn his life over. Uh, so I'm just saying that we never know. In this case, Avraham it says you'll come to your ancestors, meaning that the ancestors are going to be in Shemayim. They're not going to be in Gehenim. Verse 16, And the fourth generation shall return here, for the iniquity of Amorite shall not yet be full until then. Verse 17, So it happened, the sun said, it was very dark. Behold, there was a smoky furnace and a torch of fire, a lapid of fire, which passed between the pieces. On that day, Hashem made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your descendants have I given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river to the river Euphrates. The Kenite, the Kizanite, the Kadmonite, the Hittite, the Pezerite, the Rephaim, the Amorite, the Canaanite, Gishite, and the Jezebzite. These are the seven nations that would be driven out during Yehoshua's, or Yeshua's, that's his name. Uh, the way that you say the name of the Messiah in English, if you were actually going to translate the name of the Messiah in English. People say, very often, they'll say, well, Yeshua... Uh, in English, is Jesus. Uh, that is not correct at all. The name of the Messiah, if you were going to translate it into English, would be Joshua, because uh, the name Joshua in uh, in Hebrew is Yeshua. So Yeshua conquers the land and drives out the nations. Baruch Hashem. Rabbi Monk, just to point out again, Rabbi Monk uh, commenting upon the Lapid and the smoky furnace, he says, so too here... The divine majesty descended in a torch of flame amid a furnace of smoke and passed between the pieces to ratify the covenant with Abraham. Why does he say so too here? Before that, he's likening this to the smoky furnace and the flaming torch which appeared to Abraham, he says, parallel Mount Sinai where the smoke and the fire descended upon the mountain. So, to put those two things together, what Rabbi Monk is saying here is that at Mount Sinai, when we looked up at the mountain, we saw smoke and fire, literally. And in the uh, Midrash, it says that when God spoke, I'm not making this up, when God spoke, flames of fire shot out from the mountain and danced around the camps of the Israelites. In fact, when it talks about in the book of Exodus, I believe the 20, 20th chapter, I believe it is, where it talks about lightning on the mountain, the word lightning there is lapidim. Literally, it's torches. There were torches on the mountain. The point being is that what Rabbi Monk is saying is that out Mount Sinai, the divine majesty, God's 
presence manifest in a smoking furnace and a flame of fire came upon Mount Sinai in order, in view of all the nation of Israel, in order to cut a covenant with us, which, by the way, included the mixed multitude, which all of us together were converts. But he's saying here that what happened there is what happened originally here. That same fire, that same smoke came down, this time to cut the covenant with Abraham. So we have here, a, these are divine representations of, of the Mashiach. So, incidentally, we move in from this great promise, from this great uh, time, into um, uh, the, the story of Sarai in, verse, in chapter 16, verse uh, 1. It says, Now Sarah, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. So Hashem has already promised a son, but we have here uh, our patriarchs and our matriarchs, they have flaws. They're humans. They're not, they're not perfect. They're not superhuman. They're like us. We get a promise from God and maybe we don't believe it or maybe we try to kick the door down or whatever the case may be. Uh, the point being is that we have some issues. And they had an issue. Their issue was they were trying to push things forward, right? Uh, Sarah was trying to... And, and I, Look, I think that Sarah had a great intention. I think Sarah was trying to be humble. Sarah was thinking it was self-sacrifice on the part of Sarah. Sarah was saying to herself, listen, my husband, he's not the problem. I'm the problem. I can't have children. He can. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give him my maidservant, Hagar. Now, Hagar is not just some slave. Hagar was actually the daughter of Pharaoh. She was an Egyptian princess, right? She would become the wife of, of, um, of Abraham. Later, she would leave um, but she would make full teshuva later in life. And after Sarah died, Abraham would take her back, but she would come back with a new name. And her new name was Keturah. So her new, the new name given to Hagar after she made full shuva was Keturah. And then her and uh, Abraham would live out the rest of their lives together after Sarah's passing. But in this case, she's a daughter of Pharaoh, right? Pharaoh said, hey, better for my daughter to be in the camp of the righteous, to being a then be a princess in a wicked kingdom. So he lets he gave Hagar to Sarah. So Sarah is thinking, listen, I, I'm the problem. It's not my husband's the problem. I should just give uh, Hagar to him. They should get married. They should have a baby. I'll raise the baby. It'll be considered my baby. I'll I'll have adopted the boy, and that's how God's plan will work out. It was uh, as we've said one time before. It was good initiative is poor judgment, uh, but. Nevertheless, Hashem is in total control. He makes total control, or ha is in total control, rather. And He takes everything that we do, even the stupid things that we do, and He turns them around for good because He loves us that much, and that's how gracious He is. So just to read through the story here. So Sarah, Abraham's wife, bore to him no children. She had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said to Abraham, See now, Abraham has restrained me. From bearing, consort now with my maidservant. Perhaps I will, I will be built up through her. And Abraham heeded the voice of Sarah. So Sarah, Abraham's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her maidservant, after ten years of Abraham's dwelling in the land of Canaan. 
and gave her to Abraham, her husband, to him as a wife. He consorted with Hagar and she conceived. When he saw that she had conceived, her mistress, mistress was lowered in her esteem. So Sarah said to Abraham, the outrage against me is due to you. It was I who gave you my maidservant in your bosom. And when she saw that she had conceived, I became lowered in her esteem. Let Adonai judge between me and you. Wow. What's going on here? Well, when Hagar got pregnant, she she conceived, she suddenly got arrogant. She got pride, she got prideful. She evidently had some Musar issues in her life, some Midot issues in her life she needed to deal with. So it says in verse 6, Abraham said to Sarah, Behold, your maidservant is in your hand. Do do with what you want want her to do. In other words, she's my wife. I can't treat her. Uh I can't treat her uh ugly. I can't uh demote her or whatever. Uh, but she's your maidservant. She's still technically your maidservant. You can do with her what you want, but I can't mistreat her. So, it says, and Sarah dealt harshly with her, so she fled from her. An angel of Adonai found her by the spring of water in the desert at the spring of the road and, uh, to shore, and he said, Hagar, maidservant of Sarah. So here, the, the, the angel of Hashem puts Hagar in her place. He says, Hagar, you, your problem, the reason that you're going through this is you got lifted up in pride. Here's what I'm going to explain to you. You are the maidservant of Sarah. In other words, she is above you in terms of uh, spiritual authority, uh, class authority, however you want to say it. You're the maidservant. Where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I'm running away from Sarah, my mistress. So Hagar here makes a bit of teshuva. She says, okay, Sarah's my mistress. She admits that she's, a, she's below Sarah in terms of uh, seniority. So it says here, And an angel of Hashem said to her, Return to your mistress and submit yourself to her dominion. And an angel of Hashem said to her, I will greatly increase your offspring, and they will not be counted because of abundance. An angel of a, and an angel of Hashem said to her, Behold, you will conceive and give birth to a son. Why does it say that? Because earlier in the story, we heard that she conceived already. So why is it saying you, you, you shall conceive? And the answer given is, is that she did conceive before, but because of her uh, arrogant, haughty attitude, she miscarried. It's a life lesson to us that God can give us a great blessing. But when we have an arrogant attitude, when we, when we look down upon people and we're abrasive to people and we have a, 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 just a haughty attitude towards people, look what I know, look what God has given me, then we will miscarry that blessing. We only get... To have the blessing of God when we are humble and we, we are submissive people. And so here, Hagar has to humble herself and admit that in fact, Sarah is her mistress. And because of that humility, now she'll be able to conceive and bring forth a child. So it says, Behold, you will conceive and bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, for Adonai has heard your prayer. And he shall be a, a wild, it says here, a wild ass of a man. His hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and over all his brothers shall he dwell. And this has been the blessing, or maybe the one could say the curse of Ishmael and his people, that very thing. Uh, but Ishmael himself would be a, a, a Zadik, would eventually make Shuvah uh, before Abraham's death, and the sages talk about that as well. So this angel, by the way, is a very special angel. It says in verse 13, here's a clue as to why it's a special angel. It says, and she called the name of Adonai who spoke to her, you are the God of vision. The sages say, wait a minute, she's talking to an angel. She's not 
really talking to God. So this is a common problem with some of the ancients because there's a contradiction here. Hashem has no form and yet he appears all the time. Uh, he, he shows up and talks to people uh, and they speak to him. And then after they're done talking to this angel, they often say things like, you're the God of vision, or I call this place Pinel El, the, the face of God. Uh, Manoah, uh, Samson's father said, we're going to die, because they were talking to this man, who is the prophet, who turns out to be the angel of Hashem, and he says, we're going to die, because we've seen God. And so the ancient commentators say, I don't understand this, how can this be? And so they, they say certain things to try to make it plausible, uh, and so, because that there, there's a lack of uh, a revelation that this is Yeshua, this is Memtet, this is the divine manifestation of Hashem, who would later, this is the Torah, the Torah, the manifestation of Hashem, who would later manifest in a physical form, a physical form of creation, which is, by the way, completely in line with uh, Torah and Judaism. Um, don't have time to get into all that precisely, but just we'll ex- you'll, you'll just stick with us and you'll find this out. So it says here, the God of vision. It says, although an angel, not God, had spoken to her, she understood that he was God's emissary. She went on to exclaim that though it was common for angels to be seen in Abraham's house, now she'd seen one in the desert. In other words, this is a very special angel. This was not the normal angels she was used to seeing in Abraham's house. Think about that. Just say la for a second. Hagar was used to seeing angels in Abraham's house. This is why later it says in the story of Jacob when he came back to the Holy Land that he ran into a company of angels and he he sent them on a mission. And he didn't say, oh my goodness, wow, look at these angels. Like you and I would say, what? I just walked into a camp of angels. The reason is because Jacob was used to it. He was used to it. He had seen angels in his grandfather's house and maybe in probably his father's house. But this was a special angel. I love this part too, this, um, to verse 14. It says, the well, uh, it, it says literally in Hebrew, Be'er l'chai ro'i, the well of the living one appearing to me. The well at which the everlasting angel appeared to me. That's in the Targum. The well at which the everlasting angel appeared to me. This well became a place of prayer in the future. Bolstered by the angel's promise, Hagar returned to her mistress and after a short while bore Abraham a son. This well, you'll see the well, right? This is the well. Uh, Some of the ancient commentators say that this is the well that uh, became Miriam's well. In other words, the well itself is Mashiach on a very deep, no pun intended, a very deep level. So it says here, uh, Abraham is later in the parasha. Continue, continue reading here. Let's continue reading in uh, the few minutes we have remaining. It says, uh, so she returns back and she's going to have a son. Uh, and it says in verse 15, Hagar bore Abraham a son and Abraham called the name of Hagar uh, bore his son Ishmael. Ver- in chapter 17, verse 1. Let's begin reading there. To finish out our, uh, our sixth reading. When Abraham was 99 years old, Adonai appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am El Shaddai, walk before me and be perfect. I will set my covenant between me and you, and I will increase you most exceedingly. Abraham threw himself upon his face, and God spoke with him, saying, As for me, 
This is my covenant with you. You shall no longer be a father of multitudes. Your name shall no longer be called Avram, but your name shall be Avraham, for I will have made you a father of multitude of nations. I will make you most exceedingly fruitful and will make nations of you and kings shall descend from you. Now, that's the, that's the end of our uh, Aliyah reading, but I want to point out a couple of things in, in the commentary. It says, Miktav me Eliyahu explains that the magnitude of this test of circumcision, now Abraham's name is being changed and he's receiving circumcision, and he points out that the magnitude of this test is that it would be regarded as bizarre. No one had been circumcising up to this point. It would be considered bizarre by the public and cause people to shun Avraham. And it would thus seriously contradict his lifelong method of bringing people to God. Now listen to this next sentence. Thus, Abraham was challenged to accept a commandment that opposes his concept of how to serve God. This is the greatness of Abraham. That even though he looked at the ways of God and said, that seems counterintuitive to try to reach people. Friends, I'm telling you right now, the attitude of Abraham directly contradicts the Western mindset of how to reach people. The Western mindset of how to reach people is to try to be like them, to try to be relevant to, to them, to try to relate to them or whatever. And that's what is going on in Abraham's heart, apparently. He's thinking, well, this is going to kind of uh, make me a pariah, so to speak. And is this, is this counterintuitive to try to reach people? Now I've got this issue of circumcision that had to be dealt with, and that's not very comfortable. That's not, that's not exactly an a, a uplifting message necessarily. But yet, despite that, he trusts Hashem. He trusts Hashem, and he accepts upon himself God's divine will because he recognizes, I am not God, and I don't know what I don't know. And this is why we follow Abraham. He gets a new name, and his name means now a, multitude, a father of a multitude of nations. And again, the commentary points out that the new name was not rhetorical, but rather it, was a, it has halakhic implications that shed light on the deeper meaning. In explaining how converts who bring their first fruit to the temple can recite the required formula, thanking God for the land he swore to our forefathers, Deuteronomy 26.3. Though converts do not descend from the patriarchs, Rambon states, all converts are considered descendants of Abraham because the Torah calls him the father of nations. Therefore, a convert can be called a son of Abraham. Rambam, whose commentary to Mishnah Bukharim 1.4. This means that the spiritual mission of mankind, which began with Adam, was now transferred to Abraham. Okay. Halakhically, friends, if someone is a son of Abraham, they are a Jew. Because Abraham was the first Jew. You've got to know that for fact. What I just said is an absolute fact. There is no such thing as a spiritual son of Abraham uh, where you're spiritually a son of Abraham uh, only. It is a halakhic fact that anybody who is a son of Abraham is considered a Jew. That's what makes a Jew a Jew, ultimately. This is why when somebody goes to a synagogue, uh, any synagogue, and they convert, 
When they come up out of the water, they're referred to as a son of Abraham or a daughter of Abraham, whatever the case may be. Uh, Just to give you a few verses from the writings of the apostles, Acts 3.25, Romans 4.16, Galatians 3.7 and verse 29, James 2.21 are all verses that talk about the fact that these non-Jews, these Gentiles who are coming to faith, are now reckoned as sons of Abraham vis-a-vis their newfound faith and commitment in Messiah Yeshua. That means, again, we got to go back to the first century. We've got to go back to Jewish thought, get out of our Western mindsets. That means, friends, that they're no longer Gentiles. It's an impossibility. You cannot be a Gentile and be a son of Abraham. It is impossible. Impossible. You just can't do it. Now, in 1 Peter 3, 6, Peter brings down that we're sons of Sarah. That's also an important distinction because it is the descendants of Abraham and Sarah that are reconciled as Jews, not Abraham and Hagar or Keturah, as her name was later uh, changed. It's Abraham and Sarah that received the promise. So Peter, Kepha, adds a little qualifier. And finally, I close with this. There's... There is uh, more that we could say. This is amazing, uh, Aliyah. But uh, final thought here from the Baal Haturim. It says, The phrase Av Hamon, father of a multitude, appears twice in this passage, here and in the next verse. The gematria of twice this phrase is 208, the same as that of Yitzhak, Isaac. Similarly, the gematria of the phrase Av uh, Arve, I will increase, is also equal to that of Isaac. What does this teach us? It teaches us that Abraham will become the father of, of a multitude, the father of uh, you know, nations and so on, and he will increase, but those promises will be made manifest vis-a-vis the son that he loves, the Akidah, in this case Isaac, Later, Isaac, remember, his sacrifice was replaced by the ram, the caught in the thicket, who was Yeshua, the ram that was created before the foundations of the earth, as the rabbis say. And Yeshua said that when Abraham saw his day, he was glad. And the rabbis say that when Abraham saw the days of Messiah was when he took the ram from the thicket. With that... I wish you a very happy prep day. Shabbat Shalom. May you all be richly blessed today. May, as the rain is coming down here, may the rain of God's blessing come down in your life. I want to see all of your shining faces on Shabbat right here. If you're not here physically, I want to see you here in our uh, online congregation. From all over the world, join us tomorrow as we celebrate Hashem. It's going to be a big day tomorrow. I'll be sharing some important vision you're not going to want to miss. So I love you all. I bless you all. I look forward to seeing you tomorrow. Shabbat Shalom. Bless, bless, blessed may you be. Amen. Good morning. Welcome, everyone, to this Yom Rishon, this first Aliyah reading from the book of Ayera. Glad that you're with me this morning. On this beautiful day, Baruch Hashem, 
as we are looking at Parsha Vayera from, which begins, by the way, I should say, in um, Parsha, excuse me, the book of Genesis, uh, chapter 18 and verse 1, which continues until the 14th verse, I believe it is. The 14th verse of Breshit. If you have your art school Chumash, we are going to be on page 78 and 79. Page 78 and 79. So glad you're with me. I hope you're having a beautiful, wonderful morning. And we're going to continue uh, or start our reading here for the first Aliyah and see what Hashem wants to show us. Thank you, Hashem, for your Holy Torah. Thank you, Hashem. Amen. So it says here, Adonai appeared to him in the plains of Mamre while he was sitting in the entrance of the tent in the heat of the day. So we learned from our last parsha that Hashem uh, had asked or commanded Abraham to circumcise himself, which he did, not just himself, but also his son Ishmael, and also, not just Ishmael, but all of the men in the house, which is significant. Uh, nevertheless, this we're now picking up the story of uh, post-circumcision uh, and what's going on with uh, him now as he's, he's, he's healing. It says here, He lifted his eyes and saw, and behold, three men were standing over him. He perceived, so he ran toward them from the entrance of the tent and bowed towards the ground, and he said, My Lord, if I find favor in your eyes now, please pass not away from your servant. So a lot is going on here in the background, according to the commentaries, according to the sages. So we're going to kind of explore that here in just a second. Continuing on reading, it says in verse 4, Let some water be brought and wash your feet and recline beneath the tree. I will fetch a morsel of bread that you may sustain yourself and then go on. Inasmuch as you have passed your servant's way, they said, Do so just as you have said. And verse 6, So Avraham hastened to the tent to Sarah and said, Hurry, three sayas of meal, fine flour, knead, and make cakes. Then Avraham ran to the cattle, took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to the youth and hurried to prepare it. He took cream and milk and the calf, which he had prepared, and placed these before them. He stood over them beneath the tree, and they ate. So, this is the first part of the Aliyah. Let's dive into it and figure out what's going on. First of all, we have an appearance of Hashem himself, that the actual Torah, the actual uh, Hebrew says that Hashem appeared to uh, to Avraham. So it says, It says that Hashem himself appeared to Abraham. Uh, and then it says he lifted up and saw, and behold, three men were standing over him. Now, the ancient commentaries uh, from the Talmud and the Midrash and so on have a tendency to divide those two uh, verses. So it, it says initially that Hashem uh, was a, appeared to uh, Abraham, and then uh, they state that he looked away and he saw three men approaching and uh, more or less he asked Hashem to to stand fast for just a moment while he runs off and would attend to these three men who unbeknownst to him are angels uh, which is showing the greatness of hospitality. I think those are uh, really uh, great insights. Um, I tend to differ personally. I, I tend to to differ with that point of view to the extent that I believe that the 
Hashem appearing to uh, Abraham and the three men are are one and the same, and that you have in the three men one of whom is is uh, would be quote unquote Hashem himself, albeit it probably more likely to say that this is Memtet, this is the uh, the great and distinguished and unique angel angel, I use that term loosely, who is the manifestation, as it were, of Hashem, as we would know later as Messiah Yeshua, appearing with uh, the two other angels. And the reason this is the case is because uh, it talks about later in the, in the parasha about these three men, two of whom go down to, uh, uh, to Sodom and Gomorrah to rescue Lot, and one of whom remains behind, and that's the one with which, uh, with whom I should say, uh, Abraham has his discourse, uh, bows down to him, and dis- discusses with him in first person about uh, that he should not make Hashem angry. So clearly, he's standing in front of the third angel, quote unquote, who is, according to the Torah, Hashem himself. So we'll get into that later. But I just want to let you know that uh, what the ancients say and how uh, I think it's a uh, a bit different. Incidentally, the reason why the ancients say this is because there is a uh, a very a uh, clear point, uh, particularly when reading Onkelos's work, of not uh, associating God with any type of physical form, which I completely understand. Interestingly, Onkelos, who was a convert uh, himself and uh, translated uh, into the Aramaic the uh, Torah and did so from a uh, parenthetical point of view almost, uh, trying to uh, bring down what was understood, he took great pains to make sure that everything he wrote, he basically changed it a little bit, modified it to a certain degree to make sure that uh, we did not give Hashem a physical form. Now, I think it's interesting that while he was doing that, more or less, uh, in that time frame, was when Yeshua appeared in the manifested form of Hashem. So it was kind of like, a, uh, almost could make like a correction. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, with kind of a correction to a point of view. Uh, but that's kind of uh, for another time. So, <clears throat> looking at this first part where it says Hashem appeared to Abraham, there's a really beautiful story brought down from the Kale Tumash that it says, When, as a young boy, Rabbi Shalom Dover of Lubavitch learned this verse for the first time, he came in tears to his grandfather, Rabbi Menachman Mendel of Lubavitch, who is also known as Zemach Zedek, and cried, if God appeared to Abraham, why doesn't he appear to me as well? So a little boy is just wanting Hashem to appear to him. And uh, he's now crying, well, how come Hashem doesn't appear to me? And so the reply that he received from his grand, uh, the grandfather, the Zemach Zedek, uh, basically in short told him, look, uh, the reason that, that God appeared to Abraham is because he was a great Zadik and because he followed him with his whole heart, and that even at the age of 99 years old, he accepted upon himself the mitzvah of circumcision. You know, most people, uh, and think about this, I was, I was about to say that most people would not accept upon themselves the mitzvah of circumcision when they're 30, or when they're 40. Uh, and then, uh, so it's remarkable when you have a man who uh, wants to convert, wants to become a true follower of Mashiach, and uh, goes through uh, uh, full circumcision. If you if you're a man and you're already medically circumcised, you have the hatafat dam brit, which is just a, a slight uh, drawing of blood. And so, a lot of men that makes them uncomfortable. But but then again, a lot do it. But but that that's even to a far lesser extent 
than circumcision. So to, for a man to be uh, circumcised today as an adult, he would have to see a, a Jewish physician, uh, would have to go to a uh, basically like a uh, outpatient uh, surgery type of thing. And, and, and there's been men in our synagogue, praise God, who have done this. And it's been it's beautiful. Uh, but it requires, you know, it requires uh, a lot at, a, at an adult age. Can you imagine being 99 years old and this operation has never been done before and you're not in a surgical center, you're having to, you know, do this uh, with your own hand uh, in a completely uh, open environment, I guess you'd say. Uh, anyway, the point being is that that's, that's a great person, that's a great zod, that's somebody who's exhibiting great faith. And so uh, he basically consoles his grandson by saying, look, this is a very unique circumstance, but we can invite the divine presence to a certain degree if we circumcise our hearts, so to speak, like Abraham. And that's what it says in the commentary. It says, much to be, is much to be learned from the child's impassioned question, as well as from his grandfather's answer. Firstly, we learn that we must yearn we must yearn, even cry out for God to reveal His presence to us. Secondly, we learn that we too can merit to see God's presence if we realize that no matter how much we have achieved spiritually, we are still not perfect. We still need to circumcise ourselves to remove the foreskin of the heart, which prevents us from attaining yet higher levels of divine consciences. I think that's a beautiful sentiment that we need not consider ourselves as if we have ever arrived. Uh, certainly, none of us should. And that we should continue to circumcise our hearts on a daily basis. On a daily basis. And I love the, the aspect of yearning for God's presence. Many of us, uh, as I, I've said earlier in another segment, that many of us go through, through hills and valleys, times of dryness, times of... Uh, of not feeling as impassioned as we maybe once did. And the answer for that is, this, somebody approached this uh, to me about this uh, fairly recently. And uh, I explained that, look, our lives are like a fire. Our hearts are like a fire. We have to stoke the fire. We have to apply wood to the fire. We, you just can't light a fire. You light a fire initially, it's like a big bonfire. And you just, if you just watch that fire and you don't do anything to it, if you don't touch it, you don't add fuel to it, uh, it eventually will die out. And so one of the ways that we can prevent the fire from dying out is to yearn for Hashem, yearn for His presence. Uh, just like Moses said, if your presence doesn't go with us, then do not send us up from here. We don't even want to leave this place, this encampment, if your presence doesn't go with us. So there's other lessons to be learned too. It talks about in the commentaries and in uh, in Sota 14a, in the Talmud Sota 14a, it says, The Torah tells us, Hashem your God, you shall follow. The Gemara learns from this that we should act towards others the way that Hashem acts towards them. One example is found in our Pasuk, in our verse, where we see that Adonai visited Avraham when he was recovering from his circumcision. Just as Adonai visits the sick, just as Hashem visits the sick, we too should visit the sick. So this is one of the great concepts, one of the great precepts of Judaism. We as Jews have a responsibility, we have a great call of hesed, loving kindness, to visit people that are sick, 
If you know of someone who's sick, you, you should visit them. And you should visit them even on Shabbat. Uh, in fact, there's a beautiful story about a rabbi uh, in Eastern Europe. And I forget, unfortunately, I can't recall his name. But uh, there's a rabbi in Eastern Europe. And of course, uh, it's Yom Kippur. And being in Eastern Europe on, during Yom Kippur would be a very uh, cold environment. And so someone had told him that there was a, a mother who had just given birth, and she was in a cabin, and, uh, uh, you know, she was by herself, and here it is cold outside. And so the rabbi in the middle of the Yom Kippur services, now keep in mind, Yom Kippur is the holiest day of the year, everybody's fasting, work is absolutely forbidden, a whole lot of other stipulations on this particular day, it's very unique. And very special and very holy. Well, suddenly the rabbi leaves. He just abruptly leaves the service. And so um, his disciples follow after him to see what happened. Well, the rabbi, uh, they follow the rabbi. He, they, they find him at this woman's cabin. And he's, he's taken off his cloak. And he's outside in the, in the snowy cold. And he's chopping wood. And uh, they said, Rabbi, what are you doing? It's Yom Kippur. You're, 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 you're chopping wood. You're, you're doing all this labor. What's going on? They're, they're beside themselves. And he explained, this woman, uh, she's essentially sick, so to speak, because she's recovering from childbirth. And it's cold in her cabinet. She doesn't have the strength to chop the wood. She doesn't have the, the, the strength uh, to uh, create the fire. So I've come to chop the logs and, stoke, and start the fire. All these things forbidden on, on Yom Kippur, but what? But it has to do with, with saving a life and uh, visiting the sick. And saving the life, by the way, is not limited to literal death, but uh, anything that can sustain, anything that it can uh, uplift, anything that can uh, you know, help someone, even if they have the potential of dying. In this case, maybe freezing to death, perhaps, even though it's maybe an outside chance. But if you see the point, the point being is that visiting the sick and taking care of people who are ill is a great mitzvah, so much so that Hashem himself, and, and notice it says, by the way, uh, because again, we talked a little bit earlier about is these, are these three men angels? Are they not angels? Etc. And the Talmud, it goes back and forth. They're not angels. They are angels. And the Talmud here, it says, well, Hashem visited the sick himself. Okay. So we've established that it's Hashem visiting and not just angels. So we've got that much going for us. So it says, uh, in the heat of the day, the day he came, and uh, God, it talks about in the ancient commentaries that, that God uh, created it to be, to be such a hot day because Avraham loved to welcome in uh, guests. He loved to welcome in guests. And uh, Hashem did not want him to have to have so much strain because he's, he's recovering. Uh, it's the third day. It's when the, the, the pain is the greatest and the most uncomfortable. And so he's caring for Abraham. So he causes it to be a hot day so that he's not bothered by guests. But that's not good enough for Abraham because this is what it says in the article Humash Commentary, something I really uh, think is great. It says, but Abraham longed for guests because... A Zadik is never content, he is never content with past accomplishments. He seeks to serve God at all times. In Avraham's case, his manner of service was through being kind to people. Shouldn't that always be our manner of service? May it be all of our manner of service that being kind to people is the core of who we are. 
So it says here, thereby drawing them into his orbit so that he could inspire them with his example to learn about and serve God. <clears throat> so Abraham and Sarah loved to be hospitable to people. They wanted to bring people in through kindness, but he had an ulterior motive, so to speak. It wasn't just for the sake of kindness. It wasn't just for the sake of being uh, pleasant to people, but through that influence, he could draw them into the presence of God. So it says there were three men. Uh, I mentioned earlier that the commentaries believe that these three men to be uh, angels. And so um, many, this is what it, it is believed. It talks about, I was trying to find the actual reference in the Talmud. I don't see it here in front of me exactly, but um, it doesn't matter. So I'll share. Oh, here it is. Praise God. Baba Matsya 86b. So these three men who visited, this is also brought down in the Art School Chumash. It says that these three men, or these three angels rather, were Michael, Gabriel, and Raphael. Why these three specifically? Mikael was there to uh, tell the uh, good news they're going to have a son. Um, Gabriel was there to bring judgment against uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and the rescue Lot. And Raphael was there, because Raphael is the root of that name is healing. Raphael was there to bring healing to Abraham. Now, Mikael, uh, Gabriel, and Raphael. Mikael is a very often, I don't, I don't want to use the word confused or mistaken. That's really not what I mean. But uh, very often, Mikael and Memtet kind of, well, I get, I guess, get confused for each other. So I think in this instance where the ancient sages are saying, this is Mikael, uh, perhaps it's Memtet, who Memtet, in my view, and the view of Lapid, is more or less uh, Yeshua the Messiah, um, uh, who is the manifestation of Hashem, who is uh, that very special uh, uh, being, if you will, the Torah made, made flesh. It's di difficult to describe because uh, it's kind of, so much above our understanding, it's difficult to, uh, you know, articulate exactly. <clears throat> but in any case, so that's what it's, who it's believed that these people uh, were. So, it says here um, that they saw, they perceived that Abraham ran out to them. He thought they were Arabs. He thought they were people. He thought they were humans. In fact, when it says, let me wash your feet, the reason that Abraham said that, according to the commentary, is that uh, evidently, in those days, uh, Arabs back then uh, were uh, I, total pagan idolaters, and they had, uh, you know, multiple gods, and one of the gods that they worshipped, apparently, was the dust. So they were the original uh, earth worshippers, I guess, and they worshipped the dust. And so, Abraham, the reason he said, wash the dust from your feet is because he did not want to bring any level of uh, idolatry into his house. He said, let me give you a morsel of bread in verse 5. Uh, and Baba Metzia 87a, I, I love this part. The Talmud says that a righteous say the righteous say little and they do much. So he told them, let me just give you a morsel of bread, but he really intended to bring them a full meal. Uh, but again, the righteous say little and they do much. We don't make big promises and then deliver little. We make little promise and deliver much. That's how we should live our lives and may God help us to do so. And verse 6 he runs to the tent and tells Sarah to hurry and make three sayas of meal and fine flour and knead and make cakes. The sages say that this event happens uh, during Pesach. 
So it says here, need. Abraham specified that Sarah personally need the dough, for she wanted Sarah herself, uh, he wanted Sarah herself to perform the mitzvah of serving the guests. According to the Midrash, that this visit took place on Pesach, and Abraham and Sarah fulfilled the commandments before the Torah was given, he wanted, her to do, he wanted her to do it herself to guard against leavening the dough. There's a couple of different opinions that, that this one is here, of course, that uh, it happened during Pesach. Another is that this happened during, uh, during um, uh, Rosh Hashanah. But in this case, that it happened at Pesach, that the, the uh, cakes would be unleavened, which makes complete sense. Because we offer in, in the in the uh, in the Talmud, excuse Talmud, in the in the uh, Mizbeach in the Tabernacle, I had the Hebrew in my mind. I couldn't think of the English word. In the Tabernacle, uh, we offer up unleavened unleavened bread, right? And so he's offering up unleavened bread to Hashem and these two angels. In my view, Hashem and the two angels, or Memted and the two angels. And so, um, so it says here. That it happened on Pesach. Now, I think that's very interesting because what we have here is what's going on. We have Avraham who is sitting there circumcised. And in the book of Ezekiel, when we say this during the Pesach Seder, we quote this verse from Ezekiel that says, In your blood live, in your blood live. And the duplicity of that statement has always been understood as, In your blood live, meaning the blood of the circumcision, in your blood live, meaning the blood of the Passover lamb from the Exodus. In other words, it takes two bloods to, to bring about salvation. The blood of the lamb and the blood of circumcision. Now, doesn't mean, people misunderstand that perhaps, and mean, oh wait, now you're saying that we can work for our salvation? No. Because think about the blood of the lamb compared to the blood of circumcision. The blood of circumcision, what is it? Does it soil an entire piece of gauze? Maybe. Uh, perhaps. Um, what does the blood of the lamb do? It soaks an entire temple floor, per, for the most part. Meaning that our effort compared to God's effort is negligible. It's not even worth mentioning, comparing the, the two. However, in your blood live, in your blood live, we have to do something. It's almost like the uh, prodigal son. He has to leave the pig trough and at least start walking towards the house in order for his father to run towards him. And it does take some level of effort. But the point being here is that here you have, in my view, Yeshua showing up with two angels um, and he's looking around going, okay, Abraham was willing to, to uh, excuse me, to, uh, to uh, circumcise himself in your blood live. And so I'll be willing to be the lamb to pour out my blood in your, in your blood live. So it says Abraham ran. Abraham was so eager to serve his guests that he himself, even in his condition, ran to the herd to select the, the meat the, that was going to be uh, served that day. So a remarkable passion that he had for serving others. Now, with respect to this, we get to this point of this meal that's being served. Now, I have an entire hour or so uh, teaching on this topic from a couple years ago about meat and dairy separation. People very often when they talk about uh, meat and dairy separation, they'll look at this passage and say, see God, uh, or excuse me, Abraham served the three angels, or maybe God and the two angels, or maybe Yeshua and the two angels, whatever. So he served these divine beings, 
meat and dairy together. So clearly it's okay to have meat and dairy together. Um, so I just want to bring some, some light to that because that is absolutely uh, not uh, correct. And I, like I said, I have a complete um, teaching on this. There's lots of commentaries with respect to this. The angels actually pretended to eat. They didn't eat exactly. Uh, it says here um, in one instance that Abraham served the dairy items for they required little pre preparation. Only after his guests had slacked their thirst and hunger did he bring out the full meal of the calves' meat, which is most likely the case. So just really quickly... Um, let me discuss this topic because meat and dairy separation is um, absolutely Torah law. Let me repeat that. Meat and dairy separation is a law of the written Torah. It is not a rabbinical tradition. It is not even an oral law. It's not even a rabbinic law. It is a absolutely a Torah law. It's always been understood to be a Torah law. At no point in Jewish history ever have it, has it been considered a, a quote-unquote rabbinical tradition or a rabbinical addition or a oral law, which many people think that to be the case. I've had many, many people, including many Messianic rabbis who grew up in Jewish homes, who made statements such as, well, this is a tradition of the rabbis. It's never been understood that way. In fact, I point out that um, Rabbi Shimei and Rabbi uh, Hillel disagreed on virtually everything, but they did agree um, that uh, meat and dairy should be separated to include uh, fowl, to include chicken. Uh, also, basically, there's, never, there ha there's no sect of Judaism ever that has believed that meat and dairy uh, was a part of kosher. So when you're talking to Reformed Jews, for instance, who themselves will basically eat anything they want, whether it be shrimp or alligator or I guess, whatever, cricket, whatever they eat. Um, if you were to tell them, well, I eat kosher, uh, and they don't even eat kosher themselves. They, they're eating a ham sandwich in front of you with cheese. And uh, you say, well, I eat kosher. And they say, oh, that's great. And you say, well, you know, except for the fact that I have a cheeseburger. And then the person would say, you don't eat kosher. And that's not kosher eating. So there's no sect of Judaism ever who's believed that. Uh, in fact, even the Samaritans, even the ancient Samaritans uh, separated uh, meat and dairy. But going back to this, the people want to use this as a proof text that meat and dairy together is perfectly fine. The problem is, is that he, he serves them cream or curds. And so it is halakhically permissible to have uh, a cream like or curds or, or maybe a yogurt or something like that as an appetizer. Theoretically, you could have this as an appetizer. And then um, some, some halakha says you could rinse your mouth and then have a meat, a meat meal. Although in most cases... Uh, with something like that, it's it's halakha to uh, to wait at least a half an hour, sometimes an hour. Um, but nevertheless, it would be in some instances, if you actually look up the halakha, it would be uh, permissible to have like a cup of milk or a little bit of cream or whatever, or curds, and then rinse your mouth and then eat the meal. But more practically, you're talking here about a situation in which you have guests, and so you you give them an appetizer, some something you already have prepared, like curds and bread, for instance, to kind of tide them over. Meanwhile, you're running to the herd, and you're instructing your servants to pick out the best calf. And some uh, commenta commentators in the uh, Talmud say there were actually three calves that he got, one one calf for each person, so he could serve them calf tongue, but. You're asking them to do this and, and prepare the calf, slaughter the calf, drain the blood, 
prepare the meat, cook the meat, and serve it. And so uh, I one time, it's a little bit anecdotal, but I, I talked to a, a butcher along, you know, quite a, quite a while back and was asking him from hoof to plate, how long would this take? And you're talking about a matter of an hour or two or maybe even three or perhaps even more than that. I forget now, it's been too many years ago, exactly what the, the uh, uh, discussion was. But the fact of the matter is, if you are very, very, very fast, you're talking about something that's going to take a, quite a while. So it's very likely that... Uh, they had these uh, milk and curds and bread and then later had the meal together. In fact, another another uh, version of this or another uh, uh, discussion of it is that Abraham, in the way that it's worded, Abraham is actually asking them, do they want a meat meal or do they want a dairy meal? Which is consistent with uh, the way that we Jews uh, talk. And that is when we're talking about going out to eat or inviting people over, um, one of the first things we discuss amongst each other is you want meat or dairy because that's going to decide a whole lot about the menu. So in this case, uh, it's the some of the ancient commentators looking at the Hebrew, looking at Ankylos and so on, say, well, actually what he did is he offered them uh, meat or dairy. You have your choice. But um, I think that more more likely it was uh, the dairy was served as an appetizer. And, uh, this is also... What uh, Rashi talked about and what Das Zekinim said, um, he said, uh, he writes that Avraham served them bit by bit as each item was prepared. Makes total sense and it's consistent also with Near Eastern culture. Thus, he did not serve them meat and milk together, which is forbidden, but rather milk and then afterwards meat. Cream and milk and the calves. That's the way it's phrased. Cream and milk and the calves, which is permissible. Um, either way... Um, it becomes pretty clear that this is not meat and dairy served together, but even if this were the case, um, one could not take a single uh, story out of the Torah and negate um, you know, 3,000 years of uh, Torah law and uh, understanding from uh, all of Judaism. But I wanted to bring that out to you, and so hopefully that will help a lot of people. So the Torah portion continues and says, Then they said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, Behold, in the tent. And he said, I will surely return to you at this time next year. And behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, well on in years. The manner of women had ceased to be with Sarah. And Sarah laughed at herself and said, After I have withered, shall I again have delicate skin? And my husband is old. My husband is old. Then Adonai said to Abraham, Why is it that Sarah laughed, saying, Shall I in truth bear a child, though I have aged? Is anything beyond Adonai? At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. So it says in the commenta- commentation here on, uh, commentary rather, on, uh, on the art scroll, it says, In view of her advanced age, she thought that such a miraculous rejuvenation would be only a great a miracle as would be as great a miracle as the resurrection of the dead. Okay, so pause, say law on that for a second. Uh, Sarah, she didn't. She thought at first she thought the uh, these these men. Remember, she's she's not she's not even certain they're angels. She thinks they're men. They, they, they think it's, they're just being nice. Okay, oh, you should have a son. 
You should, you, God should make you uh, young in your age. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. She's laughing at herself saying that me having a baby when I'm so old, and, or, or excuse me, when, when my body has stopped functioning as it should in order to have a baby, my husband is so old, this is like the resurrection of the dead. And this is what it says in the art scroll according to Radak and Sforno. Only God himself can accomplish the resurrection of the dead. Only God himself can accomplish the resurrection of the dead. So just connecting that back to the Besorah, when Yeshua says, I am the resurrection and the life, only God can accomplish the resurrection of the, of the dead. Yeshua said, I am the resurrection and the life. Got to put some things together, my friends, and read between the, the uh, proverbial lines. Nevertheless, uh, she gets called out on this, and uh, the angels, quote-unquote, Hashem, actually, it says here in verse 13, where is it in the Hebrew? Vayomer Adonai el Avraham. Vayomer Adonai el Avraham. So Hashem is speaking here, but wait a minute, I thought it was three angels. And it says Vayomer Adonai el Avraham. Didn't say Vayomer Mikael. Didn't say Vayomer Gavriel. Didn't say Vayomer uh, Raphael. It said Vayomer Adonai el Avraham. Okay, so it says here, Why is it that Sarah laughs, saying, Shall I in truth bear a child, though I have aged? So this will be one of our final thoughts today as we conclude this Aliyah. They, they left out the part that she actually said. She said that my husband is old. They changed it and said, Why did she say I am old? Now, the uh, commentary, Rishonim and so on, talk about this fact and say that in reality, they were guarding against Lashan Hora, and they were uh, guarding Shalom Bayit, peace in the home. They felt that if they said what she actually said, it would hurt Avraham's feelings, and he might tell Sarah later, how come they might get into an argument, how come you say I'm so old? Well, I'm old to you now? Um, and that would cause problems. So the angels or Hashem actually said, she said that she was old. Why is she laughing? So I think that's very beautiful. God's concerned about Shalom Bayit. That we should also be concerned about Shalom Bayit, and that Hashem should help us to, to guard our tongue, uh, and that uh, He should help us to try to bring peace between each other and between others. And so he concludes and says, Is anything beyond Hashem? At the appointed time, I will return to you this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. The appointed time is Moed. And so there's those who believe that Mashiach was born at Rosh Hashanah. And there's others, or not Mashiach, Slika, uh, Isaac. Uh, others believe that he was born uh, at uh, Pesach because nevertheless, uh, either, either Rosh Hashanah or Pesach, the fact being that the word Moed, is used, meaning a festival day at the appointed time, at the Moed. But I love how it says, is anything too impossible for God? As, as people, as human beings, we will do good to have a can-do attitude. A can-do attitude. We can accomplish this with God's help. It is so much the better to be positive people with a positive outlook. On a spiritual level, we have to understand that with God, nothing is impossible. Hashem can do anything and will do anything.
All we're required to do is believe him and step out of the proverbial boat. So, I want to conclude and end on and tie a bow on this segment with that thought. Be positive. Have a can-do attitude. And when you're facing a challenge, just trust God. It's going to work out. And it'll make you a better person. And it'll bless people for being around you. And people will want to be around you because we want to be around positive people. So I love you all. I hope you have a blessed, wonderful, and awesome day. With God's help, we will see you in the morning for the second Aliyah. And may we all yearn for Hashem and yearn for His presence. Bless you so much. Have a fantastic day and enjoying the sunshine. Amen.